bunch of grown men who are wobbly looking and stiff and sore and limping. It's because yesterday was our annual Thanksgiving weekend turkey bowl. I'm not bringing this up to gloat or to brag. I just want you to know that. In fact, just mentioning the turkey bowl a few years back in a sermon has gotten me in a great deal of trouble so that I have like this bullseye on my chest that everybody is out to beat my winning streak. So I'm not here to mention that I've won 18 years in a row without losing. Uh, but I, I can tell you to the point that random strangers would come up to me like, you're going down this year, you're done. Like first time visitors, you're dead, like that, right? Uh, I knew I was in trouble when Joe Verghese had come to me last week and he said, this year, you're done, it's over, right? Now, I don't know if you've met Joe, but Joe is the nicest human being I have ever met in my life. And if Joe Verghese was angry at me, I literally went home and told Shainu, Shainu, I am in a lot of trouble. Joe Verghese is out for me, right? And that's how I knew it was very bad. Thankfully, I ended up on Joe's team, and so I couldn't face his wrath. But he here's the thing. What I love about this annual football game is that we've had these great rivalries over these years because of these great teams, right? There's been a real clear us versus them, right? Every year that we played, it's, it's never been that, you know, 20 guys show up on a field and we just pick up some guys. There's always been a clear us versus them feel to it. For example, when I started playing, I was 14 years old, and we were in New York, and we played with a bunch of guys from our church, but it was Merrick versus Elmont. These are two towns in New York. And, and it was like we were on opposite sides of the train tracks and they were Elmont and we were Merrick. And so there was a, a clear us versus them. A after that, it, we played with a bunch of guys from our church against another church. And again, there was a bunch of pride there because this was us versus them. Even yesterday, it, there was a clear demarcation. It was the old guys versus the young guys, right? So the young guys are high school seniors and college guys and young 20-year-olds, and then there was the old farts, all the rest of us, right? It, though I have to tell you, Ebby John, I heard him say about 10 times, 28 is not that old. I don't know why I'm with you guys. 28 is not old, right? And, and we just kept telling him, just give in, brother. Just give in. It's, it's going to go downhill from here. Half the guys on our squad had to wear pink tape because they couldn't be tackled for medical issues. Uh, and if it wasn't medical issues, it was wife issues that their wives were gonna kill them if they came home hurt. Uh, Joe Verghese and I were popping Motrin pills before we even started playing. I kid you not. We were medicated before the game started. It was not pretty, but again, it was great because there was a clear us versus them. And, and that's what we love about stuff like sports, right? That there's, a, there's, a, there's something to it that feeds into that. This is why football isn't just the Eagles versus the Cowboys. This is Philly versus Dallas, right? This is us versus them. And you find it all over the place. You, you find it in patriotism with your country and, and in lots of different places. And, and when it's good, it's really good. And when it's bad, it gets really bad. Right? Because if you apply that same kind of thinking to, for example, races or ethnicities, then we know the problems that it causes when it's us and people that look like us and we're us and you're them and there's this separation. And then that kind of thing also we find seeps, unfortunately, into the church as well. 
so that in the church there's a clear us versus them. Now, who's the us? The us are the folks who find themselves within the four walls of this place. And, and who's the us? We're the Bible-reading, God-knowing, moral, decent, religious people. And who's the them? Well, they're everyone outside of the sanctity of these four walls, in the neighborhoods and in the homes and in the cities and in the world. And, and they're the not God-knowing, not scripture-reading, immoral and irreligious and not good. Now, we would never come out and say it, but it's almost like we know what our teams are. We're the good guys, and they're the bad guys. God's on our team and not on theirs. Right? We're us, and if we're honest, there are times where we don't really want anything to do with them. For example, we're not all that excited when our children hang out with their children because we're afraid of what influences they will bring on our precious children and the, the culture they'll bring in and the influences they'll bring in. And, and so we like the sanctity and the safety of these four walls because they keep us as us and they keep them as them. And, and if we're not careful, then if this thinking begins to pervade in the church, then what begins to happen is you develop sort of this bunker mentality where we're so happy to huddle together. And, and this is like a bunker and a fortress for us. And all we're doing is we could spend all our days here talking shop about God, and we're just waiting for Jesus to return and take us out of this place and far away from them. And if that is even remotely true, if there was sort of a, a team name for us, if there was a mascot that could help, you know, sort of rally all of us together in this team, we'd have to go no further than the Bible itself to find a perfect mascot for us. The mascot for our team would be the prophet Jonah. Benu just read his story in chapter 1 for you. If we needed a mascot for what this team would look like, it would be the prophet Jonah, because in the scriptures, if there is anyone who knows clearly this is our team, and that's another team, it's Jonah. This is who he is. This is what he's about. Everything about Jonah functions this way. He knows who his team are. It's, it's the people that look just like him, who, who are part of Israel, who have the scriptures, who have God's commands, who are God's covenant people. We're in, and he knows everyone who's out also. That's the people outside of the covenant community who don't have the scriptures and don't have God and don't have the laws and, and don't have all the values and worldviews that we do. And so, in, in a sense, it's not too far off to go, we're Team Jonah. Now, the problem is, when you read the book of Jonah, you come across a huge problem because if there is a single message in Jonah, if I had to take the book of Jonah, that's four chapters, 48 verses, not very long, if I had to summarize for you in one sentence what the entire book of Jonah is, it'd be this. God doesn't just love us. God loves them. And God desires to use us to love them. Let me say that again. If I had to summarize this again, I'd say it this way. God doesn't just love us. God loves them. And God intends to love them through us. And in four chapters, this is what Jonah is almost painfully going to learn. And so let's, let's pray together also that we might learn this as well. God doesn't just love us. God loves them, 
and God intends to love them through us. Let's pray that we would get that message and then we'll press into this book together. Father, thanks for these brothers and sisters who sit now under your word. Lord, we do not ask for condemnation. That is from the enemy. You have not come to condemn. But we do ask for conviction, for that is from your spirit. Like a surgeon's scalpel, you can cut us, but only to heal us. So we leave ourselves bare to you and your word and ask that you would go to work on our hearts. There are things in our hearts that we don't see that you see with crystal clarity. And so we pray, O oh Lord, that you would be working on our hearts. Five words from your Holy Spirit will be more effective than a thousand words of our own. And so give us a mouth, mind to speak, and us ears and hearts and minds to receive, that through all of this we might be drawn closer to Christ. It's his, in, in his name that we pray. Amen. Okay, let's talk about Jonah for a minute so that you're aware of who he is. The first time Jonah appears in the scriptures is actually not in the book that bears his name. Jonah actually shows up. He arrives on the scene of the scriptures earlier than the book of Jonah. The first time Jonah appears in the scriptures is way back actually in 2 Kings chapter 14. Now let me just tell you what's happening there. In 2 Kings 14, you've got Israel. And if you remember, Israel, we said last week, had been divided into two kingdoms. So you've got this northern section, the southern section. And the northern section of Israel is a mess. And in chapter 14 of 2 Kings, you find out that they're again in a mess under a wicked king named Jeroboam. And this is what it says about him. This is verse 23. It says, Jeroboam reigned 41 years, verse 24, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Skip down to 25. But he restored the border of Israel from Libo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So here's what happens, because that's a mouthful. Israel is neck deep in sin. They've got a wicked king named Jeroboam on the throne, and everyone in Israel is neck deep in sin and is wicked. And here's a time where they should be wiped out and destroyed. And yet, rather than wiping them out, and rather than destroying them, God is actually going to be incredibly gracious to them. In fact, this is going to be a season where by Jeroboam, this wicked king, Israel is going to grow like it's never grown before. Its boundaries are going to expand. Instead of being wiped out, they're actually going to prosper and succeed. Everything's going to go well. They're going to receive mercy and grace and compassion. And guess who gets to go and deliver this message of God's mercy? Jonah. Jonah's the one who gets to pack his bags, head to the king's palace, and announce to them, though you have done everything wrong, God is going to be gracious and merciful and compassionate. He's going to grow your borders. You're going to enjoy a season of success like never before. And so Jonah, hear this, has seen firsthand what God's mercy and grace and compassion and love looks like to an undeserving people. Jonah has seen firsthand what it looks like for God to be gracious and compassionate and merciful 
to an undeserving people. Now, when you keep that in the back of your mind, and now you get to Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, and it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now you know that the original readers are not scratching their head going, Who's Jonah? They're going, Jonah, we love Jonah. When Jonah comes to town, God's mercy comes to town. Right? We were wicked, we were terrible, but Jonah came in and told us God was going to be merciful and gracious and give to us even though we did not deserve it. And so now, this is exactly what God intends to do again. To have Jonah pack his bags one more time, to head to an undeserving people, and announce again God's mercy and God's grace and God's kindness. Give them an opportunity to be restored. And so Jonah should be all set, right? He's been there, done that. This is not new terrain. He's already done this exact mission before. Except this time... The message is for them. This time, the message is for them. Right? You, you hear that. 1 verse 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. This time, who God intends to show mercy and grace to, to offer a chance of repentance to, is them and Jonah wants no part of that. Now, you need to understand who Nineveh is so that you're not coming down hard on Jonah unfairly. Right? You, you need to know what he knew about Nineveh. So let, let me just describe what Nineveh is for you. Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. That's modern-day Iraq. And being the capital city of that empire, you would have found in Nineveh what you love and hate about any major city. Right? It's the capital city. It's where the king built his palace. So there's going to be lots of people and lots of commerce and lots of culture and lots of food and lots of music and lots of architecture. There's going to be lots bustling in this metropolitan, cosmopolitan, great city. But there's also going to be the stuff that some of us hate about cities. It's not particularly safe. There's a great deal of violence. There's an awful lot of crime. It's not exactly where you would want to raise your kids. There's a bunch of stuff about Nineveh you would hate at the same time. In fact, Nineveh is particularly a violent and wicked city. One historian and author says that no people in biblical history had a worse reputation for violence and arrogance and brutality as the Assyrians did. So I, I could read you accounts, and I've read some of them, of the creative ways these Ninevites thought up to torture their enemies. I mean, they were not playing around. They were not nice people. And now their evil, the text said, had come up to the Lord. And the Lord intends to give them a chance to repent, lest judgment should come to them. So here, here's what you've read then. It's as if they, the city, is headed for destruction, and Jonah could not care less. Right? The city's going to hell. Mind you, don't, don't miss this. The city's going to hell, and the religious guy could not care less because he is so happy that he gets to huddle with all the people who are just like him. And even if they're going to hell, thank God we're going to heaven because he knows his team. It's us, and they're them. And so listen to what Jonah does. This is 1, verse 3. 
But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. What we read is Jonah runs. He skips town, and and it's amazing where he goes. The text says he goes to Tarshish. Tarshish is modern-day Spain. Right, so if you could pull up the world map in your mind again, see, see that. He's in Israel. God told him to go to Iraq. He's gone as far east as he can possibly go to Spain. Right? And remember, this is, this is before Columbus sailed the ocean blue. So nobody knows about the new world. This is as far to the edge of the earth as possible. God's told him to go west. He goes as far east as humanly possible and runs. Now, why? In chapter 1, we're not told why he runs. So, so maybe we're left to do a little bit of guessing. And, and maybe some of us would go, maybe he's just scared, right? After all, I just described to you what an evil and wicked city Nineveh is. And, and fear might be it, right? After all, even today... Let's not bring this thousands of years back. Even today, isn't fear a huge reason why people flee the city? Right? You don't want to be anywhere near the city. And so maybe he's scared because we don't want to go to the city. This is why we send money to Doug Logan, our church planting friend in Camden. Because I'm not going to Camden. Right? You're not going to Camden. So we'll send checks all day and thank God that he's in Camden. But we're not going. Right? And so maybe you go, I feel for Jonah. Right? You know what it's like to be given a mission that's intimidating. We know how scared we are to share our faith with our neighbor, with a coworker. How we quake in our boots at the thought of opening our mouth, let alone crying out to an entire city, an evil city at that, about the Lord. And so maybe there's a part of you that feels for Jonah. Except it's not until chapter 4 that we find out that the real reason Jonah does not want to go is not because he thinks his message will be rejected, but rather because he knows his message will be received. you got to hear that again. You find out that the real reason Jonah doesn't want to go is not because he's afraid he's going to be rejected. The real reason he doesn't want to go is because he knows his message will be received. He knows God's going to be gracious. He knows God's going to save. He knows God's going to be kind. And he wants nothing to do with that. Because as far as Jonah's concerned, they are getting what's coming to them. And they deserve it. And he wants no part in seeing that change. In fact, for Jonah, he doesn't want Nineveh to receive mercy. What Jonah is, is Jonah is fine with grace and mercy, and good news, and gospel for us. But he has no thought for that for them. He's fine all day with us receiving the undeserved mercy and grace of God. That's our team, but not theirs. And he knows who his team is. It's a bunch of people that look just like him, with his background, with his worldview, with his values. They vote the way he votes. They think the way that he thinks. They listen to the music he listens to. Everything about them is so familiar and so comfortable. And now, if God intends to shake that up by bringing in a bunch of people of a different background, 
of a different race, of a different ethnicity, of a different culture, different worldview, different preferences, and bring that into our team to muddle the purity of our team, Jonah wants nothing to do with that. Do you hear that? His preferences are so strong about what he likes and what his people's like that if God is going to take them and make them a part of us to the point that there's no more two teams but they are us, Jonah wants nothing to do with that. Right? And I can give you examples galore of how these things happen even in our day. We like what we like. For example, this week I read for two seconds about this this big internet debate going on with a bunch of Christians because six older men were on a panel and asked what they thought about Christian rap. And their response was basically to say that it is, has no place whatsoever in the church and that it should be rejected completely. Now, there's a mountain of background and all of that, and I'm not even smart enough to engage the debate, but, but I just can't imagine that heaven's you know, set list, music, is only Chris Tomlin singing worship songs and praise songs. I think the point is, we know what we like, and we don't like the idea of anything stirring that. And the idea that I'm going to have to give up my preferences or that my team is not going to look the way that I thought it was going to look bothers Jonah to the point that he wants nothing to do with them. And God is trying to come and say over and over again, God doesn't just love us. God loves them, and God intends to love them through us. When you get that, suddenly everything about the book starts to change. You read the book different. Four chapters, 48 verses, but you read it different. Because till now, you think that this book is about Jonah, and opposing him is Nineveh. But you begin to realize this book is about God, and opposing him is Jonah. Till now, you read this thinking that the idol-worshipping pagans are the problem. You begin to realize that the problem is not the pagans, but it's the prophet. You read this thinking that the major obstacle to overcome is the wicked, sinful city. You come to discover the major obstacle in the book to overcome is the self-righteous, proud, racist, ethnocentric religious guy who loves the safety and sanctity of his four walls. That's the one God is after in the book. You, you read the book and you realize there is no greater contrast in the book of Jonah than God and Jonah. You've you got to get that. It's not the contrast between God and the pagans. The greatest contrast in the book is between God and Jonah. R remember the moral, religious, Bible-knowing, temple-worshipping good God. His heart is the one that's totally on a different page. Right? When you contrast the two, God loves Nineveh. Jonah hates them. God loves the city. Jonah despises the city. God intends to take someone who's received mercy and send them out to them that they might come in. Jonah wants to stay in and keep them out. Jonah would be perfectly happy, thank you, to be spending the rest of his days talking shop about the goodness of God and the attributes of God and Bible studies about God as long as it's this holy huddle. And Jonah would be perfectly content. I mean, here is a guy who has received undeserved mercy and grace and has no thought to extend that to another. 
Here's a guy who knows everything there is to know about God. You're not going to improve on Jonah's theology. I mean, he's got it every I dotted, every T crossed, and yet he has no compassion and no love. Isn't that the weirdest thing, that you'll find people who have every right thing in their head, and yet their heart makes you go, that is the ugliest thing I've ever seen. And yet we're filled with that. Here's a guy who is so wrapped up in his culture that he's a racist to the thought that there might be someone else who comes in. He's so self-righteous and so proud, he's actually blind to the fact that he is as sinful as the city that God has called him to. In fact, the irony of the book, and there are many ironies throughout the book, there's so many places where you go, that's ironic. The irony of the book is, in the entire book of Jonah, all the pagans end up coming to God. It's only the prophet that runs from him. The irony of the book is every time God shows up to the pagans, they repent. The only person who doesn't repent in the book is Jonah. They flock to him. He runs from them. That's the story. And then soon enough, you begin to realize this book is as much about God chasing the heart of this proud prophet as he is the people in the city. And that chase becomes very literal because Jonah runs, and, and then listen quickly to how God chases him. This is verse 4. It says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. So Jonah runs, and here's what happens. God, in his grace, goes after Jonah. Now, when you read that, that narrative at first, it doesn't seem like grace. I mean, God's literally hurled a storm at Jonah. It's, it seems terrifying, like God is after him. But that storm is not judgment. It is mercy. It is grace. Because let me tell you what judgment would have looked like. Judgment would have been 1 verse 4 saying, And Jonah sailed off in the sunset and lived his days on a shore in Spain, drinking Mai Tais on the beach. That's what judgment would have looked like. Because the scariest thing that can happen to you is not God throwing a storm to win you back. The scariest thing that God could do to you is say, go. You want to go? Go. Have it your way. Enjoy life. The, the most terrifying thing when we're running as fast and as hard as we can away from God, that God could do to us is give us success in that endeavor. Fine. This storm is the mercy of God because this is what it's going to take to win this proud prophet's heart back. And God will go spare no expense. He'll literally throw creation in an upheaval to win this guy's heart back. And that's what he does. And when you get into the storm, you see a number of other ironies as well. Let me just give you a few so that you see the genius of this book. Right? Here's an irony. He's sitting in this bucket in the middle of the sea. And would you, would you guess who's sitting around him? Pagan sailors. Right? He had run as far as he could to the end of the earth to avoid the pagans. He didn't want to be with the pagans. And now he's stuck in a bucket in the middle of the sea with pagans everywhere. Right? It's almost as if one preacher said, it's almost as if God's grabbing Jonah by the back of the neck and saying, you've got to get this. You're here for them. I don't care if you don't like them. I don't care if they intimidate you or you don't want anything to do with them. My heart is for them, and if you're for me, 
you're going to be for them. I'm not going to drop this. I'm not going to let it go. You are here for them. Right? And so you begin to see some of these ironies that play out. For example, there's another irony. In verse 5, Jonah is sleeping at the bottom of the ship. In verse 6, it says, So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. What an irony that is. That the pagan has to wake up the prophet and beg him to pray. Do you get that? They have to wake us up and say, Would you please seek God if there's something he could do about the mess out there? That the pagan is rebuking the prophet and saying, if you've got a God who could actually do something about all the mess that's happening around us, would you please call out to him? He's essentially saying, would you please act in a way that would actually benefit someone if you've got a God who could? Right? When Jonah introduces himself, he says, I'm a Hebrew who believes, who fears in the Lord who made the sea and the land. And it's almost as if the pagans are saying, with your perfect theology then, could you actually do something that would benefit those that don't have that theology, that are around you? We're dying out here, and you're sleeping with your perfect doctrine. We're dying up here, and you have no thought with your perfect theology. And you wonder, Seven Mile Road, if our city won't rise up one day and say the same about us. It, you, you fear the thought that our city would one day be able to say, you guys loved your four walls and you talked all day about this God and you were sleeping on this perfect theology while we were dying out there. If our city couldn't say to us, if our neighbors couldn't say to us, to me, you had a perfect theology of hell. You knew everything there was to know about it, yet you never told us how to escape it. If our city told us, if our neighbors told me, you had a perfect theology of God's love. You threw around words like hesed. Right? You know 99% of the city has no idea what hesed is. I bet 99% of you do. You threw around words like that. You had perfect theology about God's love, and yet you never showed it to us. You wonder if the, the city won't rebuke us the way that the city the pagans are rebuking this prophet. The irony is Jonah knows God, and yet he's the worst one on the ship. The worst one on the ship. They're sitting there with a bunch of godless pagans, and they're in the storm because of his sin, not theirs. And as you keep reading, I'll, I'll go through it quickly. You find they even have more compassion than this guy does. When they do find out that this storm is Jonah's fault, his doing, I mean, their first instinct should be to throw this guy overboard. This God, whoever he is, wants him, will give him. And yet verse 13 says, they rode hard, trying to outdo the storm, trying to break away from the storm to see if there was any way to save Jonah. Could you put that together for a second? Here Jonah is, he doesn't care if the pagans die, and yet the pagans are doing everything they can to make sure that Jonah lives. I mean, what a rebuke it is when the men who do not know the Lord show greater compassion and concern and love and grace than the one who does. Then the pagans who have no theology seem to reflect a heart of concern and compassion 
much more than the one who has perfect theology. Well, as you read the story, God is merciful to the pagans. He's also merciful to the prophet. And so God gives the prophet another chance. And that's basically what the whole whale thing is. Right? The men throw him overboard. He's swallowed up for three days and three nights. All of chapter 2 is basically him praying from the belly of this fish, praying out to God, thanking him for saving his life and sparing his soul. And then, after three days and three nights in the depths, buried as it were, he is spit back into the land of the living, and the Lord gives him a second chance. This is 3, verse 1. 2, verse 10, and 3, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So here's, he's got his second chance. He heads back to Nineveh. Let me tell you for the sake of time what happens. Jonah gets there, and in the Hebrew, he preaches a five-word sermon. That's it. Now, he may have said more. That's all we're told. Five words. 3 verse 4 says, Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's all he says. Right? So let me tell you who Jonah is because you've seen him. Jonah is the guy in the middle of the city with the cardboard sign that says, Judgment is near, repent. And on the back it says, The world is coming to an end, repent. Now you smile because what do you do with that guy? You walk right past him and go, Nut job. Right? This is not supposed to work. It never works, it just ticks people off. And yet Jonah goes to the meanest, baddest, vilest city in human history. He's got his cardboard sign. It's got five words on it. His sermon is five words long. Nineveh should toss him out or end him or do something much worse. And yet you read verse 5, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Did you hear that? Jonah preaches a five-word sermon. Forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown and the entire city repents. It says they believe God. This should have never worked and yet God's at work. So that through this lousy five-word sermon, this entire city gets on its knees and believes God. And notice that, not Jonah. They believe God. If if I could take a two-second tangent, I'd say to you, If you come to set my road, would you let that much be enough for you to pray for your preachers? Right? So that on Saturday night or on Sunday morning, you could pray a five-word prayer. Father, speak through our preachers. Because five words from the Holy Spirit can do much more than 10,000 words in the flesh. And if you would seek God for those five words, then imagine the impact that could happen on your soul and on the city. Because Jonah speaks these five words, and the whole city repents. In fact, you have the most massive repentance and revival recorded in the Bible, and it happens out of all places in Nineveh. Did you hear that? It doesn't happen in some buckle along the Bible belt. It happens in the baddest, meanest, nastiest, most sinful city. And if if I were to take a guess at why it was Nineveh that that happened, Here'd be my guess. In in the New Testament, God saves this man named Saul who becomes Paul. He was a bad man. He killed Christians. And he says, God saved me, the meanest, baddest, nastiest sinner, 
so that he'd have an example that if he could save me, he could save anybody. And I think God saved and chose the meanest, nastiest, baddest city on the planet to say, if God could save Nineveh, oh, then no city is outside his power. To give hope that if God could do that in Nineveh, then God could do that in Philadelphia. That God could do that in our city. And so the city repents. And they go into fasting and they repent and they turn to the Lord, and then you read that the Lord says, I'm not going to bring judgment on you. This is what I wanted all along, mercy and grace. And here's how chapter 4 ends. This is the last chapter. Jonah hears of that, and he is exceedingly angry. In fact, if you look at 3 verses 10 to 4 verses 4, I won't read it for you now, but he basically vents to the Lord, and he says, Lord, I knew this. This is why I ran, even from my home to Tarshish, because I know that you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. I knew you were going to show mercy to them. And you think of what an irony that is. I mean, don't we sing songs about how gracious God is and merciful God is and slow to anger God is and kind God is, and yet those attributes that we love about God is exactly what Jonah hates about him right now. I hate that you're that way to them. I love that you're that way to me. I hate that you're that way to them. Jonah can't take it. He can't stand it. And so Jonah 4 ends with him going up this hill to overlook Nineveh, hoping beyond hope, fingers crossed, that maybe God changes his mind and just burns him. And so he wants a front row to see, seat to see if God will actually destroy them. While he's sitting there under the scorching sun, waiting, hoping that something bad is going to happen, God is going to teach him a lesson. So overnight, he lets this plant grow provide shade for Jonah. And it says, as exceedingly angry as he was, now he's exceedingly glad. I mean, this is a drama queen. So he's, he's going through mood swings like crazy. Exceedingly angry. He gets the plant. He's exceedingly glad. And God wants to teach him a lesson. And so God sends a worm, just like he sent the whale. He sends a worm who eats up this plant. It withers overnight. It dies. Jonah gets up so angry. How could you have let that plant perish? This is what Jonah says. And let me read you how the book ends. 4 verses 9 to 11. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he, that's Jonah, said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? God's saying, let, let me get this straight, Jonah. You're, you're weeping over a plant that grew up in a night. You didn't toil for it. You didn't put the soil around it. You didn't put seed or water. You're weeping over a plant, and I'm not supposed to pity Nineveh? That city that I've watched with all those thousands of people day after day for hundreds of years, should I not pity Nineveh? You are pitying a plant that perished. Should I not be moved by a city that is perishing? And God's finally saying to him, are you going to join me in loving them or not? And that's how the book sort of ends. Are you going to join me in loving them or not? Because if God could say it, he's saying again, I love you, 
but I also love them, and I intend to love them through you. Now, are you in or not? And with that, the book ends. It ends on a question mark. Right? It, it ends, and, and it's an odd way to end a book. It's almost like you reach this cliffhanger and the credits start rolling. Right? Like, you've got no resolution. Like, what happened? Did Jonah get it? What did Jonah say back? Did Jonah understand? Did Jonah repent? Did Jonah change? It, it ends. It just ends. And, and it ends that way because it's genius, and it's almost as if the question is not just what did happen to Jonah, but it ends that way to ask, so what's going to happen to you? It's almost as if God pulls you into the story and say, what's it going to be for you? Are you in or not? Because the, the biggest question we want to know is what happens to Jonah, but the bigger question is what's going to happen to you? Are you in or not? Not just what will Jonah's story be like from here, but what will your story be like from here? How will you respond to the reality that God doesn't just love us, but God loves them and God intends to love them through us? So let me end by saying this. If you're here and you're honest, maybe you're saying to yourself, I get this, and I really want to change. If you're honest, you might even be honest enough to say, I'm a lot like Jonah. I don't think that I'm racist particularly, but I do know I'm really comfortable with people that are just like me. I love huddling here. I love this with people who share my faith and share my values and who have my background and see the world that I see it their preferences are like my preferences, and I love this holy bubble, right? And if you're honest, you go, that's a lot like me, and I wish I was different, but how on earth can I change? Well, I want to tell you one thing. I have really good news because I think Jonah changed. I think Jonah finally got it. Now, how do I know that? What verse? I showed you all 48 verses. What verse? What chapter? And I can't show you a verse, but instead what I want to say is I think it's right under our nose. And that's that if you would take one giant step back from the chapters and the verses and look at the book as a whole, who authored the book? Jonah. Jonah's the source of the book because Jonah's the one who tells you what he prayed in the belly of the fish and what he said to God privately on that mountaintop. Jonah's the author of the book. And if Jonah's the author of the book, who throughout the book thinks he's right and God's wrong, yet how does he portray himself in the book? He portrays himself in a way that you know he's the bad guy. And the only way he could have done that is if he's not in that place anymore. Right? If, if he's where he was in chapter 4, which is I'm right, God's wrong, he would have never written a book that shows him to be the bad guy. And the only way he gets it is because he's not there anymore. And in fact, he's telling you the story to say, don't let that happen to you either. Which, which leaves out hope to the most pious and self-righteous and proud and insular and holy huddle and bubble of us all to say, if Jonah could change, then we can too. God really can change our hearts as well. We should love this story. And the last thing I'll say then is this. Jesus loved this story also. I won't read you now, but in Matthew 12, Jesus talks about the same story. And he's talking to a bunch of Jonah types, Pharisees. 
They're proud. They're self-righteous. They're God's team. They know the scriptures, but they hate them. And when Jesus sees them, he says the same thing, and he brings up Jonah, and he says, listen, you, you want a sign of whether or not you're going to believe in me? You're not getting a sign. This will be the sign I give you, the sign of the prophet Jonah, that just as Jonah spent three days in the belly of that fish, so the Son of Man will spend three days and nights in the heart of the earth and then rise. And then he says, and the, the city of Nineveh is going to stand in judgment over you because they heard Jonah. Remember his five-word lousy sermon? And they believed. And yet, I tell you the truth, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus saying, God loves sinners, so he sent Jonah. But Jonah wasn't enough because Jonah needed just as much saving as the city did. And so God sent something better than Jonah, something greater than Jonah who could save both the city and the prophet, who could save the immoral and the moral, the irreligious and the religious, the ones who never read the scriptures and the ones who memorized the scriptures. And they both needed a better Jonah. And Jesus says, I'm him. God sent Jonah. Jonah ran. God sent me. I endured the cross. I loved the city. In fact, I was taken outside the city so that I could be killed for the city. J Jonah flees from the Lord, and, and Jonah would rather die than see them saved. Jesus died so that they would be saved. And on the third day, he was spit back into the land of the living so that he might be hope for the pagans and the prophets. Let's pray. Our Lord, we would ask now that your Holy Spirit would burn into our hearts your word and that you would do a work in us, that we who find ourselves within the four walls of this place would actually have a response now like the city of Nineveh. That's the thing. What would please you now is that we would respond like those pagans back then did, that we would be cut to the heart and plead out for your mercy. That if we find that we're in a season where we're running from you, oh Lord, don't give us over to our own end. Pursue us. If there's any here who's running from you right now, would you catch them, whatever storm it takes, and reclaim them for yourself? If there's any here who, who identifies with the city, who's not sure about this God or Christianity or Jesus, would you show them that you sent Jesus himself because of your love for the city? And that if you could save Nineveh, there is no one and nothing you cannot save. And for those of us who are here and we are proud and self-righteous and we love this place and this bubble and we're all for your grace among us and we could talk about you all day until you come back but we're not moved in compassion to a neighbor, to a coworker, to a friend, to those who don't know you. Would you come and do the same work in our hearts that you did in Jonah's? Would you change us? We confess we can't do that on our own. We ask you to come do that today. And I really am, with all my heart, grateful for the ways you have begun to do that here at Seven Mile Road. We ask that you would use your word to complete that work you have started in us. We have confidence you will. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.
Amen.